Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw a clear vision in he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter was up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him and said, Rise. Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called to ask whether Simon, who is called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, 
You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. And so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Well, I've mentioned many times before that I was not an amazing student early on in my life, and it might be debatable whether I'm an amazing student at this stage in my life, but one of the reasons I was not such a great student early on in my life is because when an assignment was given, I would ask the wrong questions. An assignment would be given, a project would be given, and the first question that would enter my mind would be, should I bother doing this? Will I do this? Not the great question, right? The right question would be, when do I need to start this? How should I begin tackling this project? Asking the wrong questions can get you set off on the wrong foot, and many times um, in my delay asking whether or not I should do it, I never would do it, and then I would uh, find the consequences came when the report card showed up at our house. Sometimes when we come to this chapter in Acts, we can find ourselves asking the wrong questions. We can come to the book of Acts and, and ask, will the gospel make it to the Gentiles? Will, will the gospel expand to the nations? And, and in reality, that's not what we're at in Acts chapter 10. Because the question has never been, will the gospel make it to the nations? The question has been, when and how will the gospel get to the nations? All the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which you've heard over and over again, Jesus' words were abundantly clear. He was going back up to the Father, and He was going to send the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of sending that Holy Spirit was to empower His witnesses to testify to the completed work of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It was not a question of whether or not it would be done. The question was when and how it would be accomplished. And that's part of what we find as we read this text, as we come to this incredibly pivotal moment in redemptive history. Now, it's, it's been a little bit since we were here in Acts, so remember we've had uh, a series of conversions. We, we've had a conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch followed by the conversion of Saul. And then we switched back to Peter. And last time we were in Acts, we looked at Peter. Peter who's made his way down to Lydda where he healed a man. And then while he was in Lydda, some uh, believers found him and came and got him and brought him to Joppa because Dorcas or Tabitha, this woman, this faithful woman, has died. 
And Peter, by the power given him by the Lord Jesus Christ, raises this woman from the dead. And the text tells us that as a result of that, many believed in the Lord in chapter 9 and verse 42. And then it says in verse 43 that he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, as Luke has done, we get to chapter 10 and out of nowhere, a new person is dropped right into our lap. This is the same thing that happened to us with the Ethiopian eunuch. We had no warning. We had no build up to this Ethiopian eunuch. All of a sudden, there's this guy coming from um, the far down south of, of, of Egypt, traveled months to get to Jerusalem to worship, has invested money in buying a scroll and is now reading that scroll and seeking to understand who the true God of Israel is. Well, here, all of a sudden, we run into Cornelius. Now, Luke wants to make abundantly clear that Cornelius is a Gentile, right? He's a centurion, which means he's a soldier, and he's over probably a 100 uh, soldiers underneath him. He's a part of a cohort called the Italian Cohort. We know that he is uncircumcised, and that comes to us very clearly in chapter 11, where we're told, or at least Peter is accused, of going and spending time with uncircumcised Gentiles. It's interesting, while Luke wants to stress the fact that Cornelius is a Gentile, if you were to take that part out and look at the way that Luke describes Cornelius, other than that, the description that that Luke gives of Cornelius would make any good Jew jealous. Look at the way he describes him. He's a devout man, meaning that, that, that he is, um, he's pious. He's, he, he's, he's religious. He feared God. In other words, he worshiped God. Then it, he specifically says that that showed up in generously giving alms to people and praying to God continually. Now, almsgiving and prayer, along with fasting, were very high and important things for Jews. In fact, if you think back to the, the, the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18 of the tax collector and the sinner, what is it that the, the, the Pharisee, or the tax collector and the sinner, the Pharisee and the tax collector, what is it that the Pharisee boasts about? That he fasts and that he gives alms, right? This description of Cornelius is, is incredible. This man is devout. He, he, he's, he, he's a worshiper of God. He gives alms generously and he prays continually to the Lord. As the story unfolds, we're just further impressed by Cornelius and his character and the way he conducts himself in this. Now, I think one of the reasons that Luke is doing this is because he doesn't want there to be any other obstacles, any other questions surrounding what's going on here, but one thing. He wants to draw one thing center stage, and that's the gospel going to the Gentiles. So Cornelius is as, if you will, as squeaky clean a Gentile as you can possibly get. So there's no other questions about his character or anything. The only objection right now, the only thing standing in the way is the fact that Cornelius is a Gentile. But before we continue with that thought, I just want to stop and say Luke continually does this to us where individuals like Cornelius like, for instance, the Ethiopian eunuch, like Ananias, who we found in Damascus, who was part of Saul's conversion, like Dorcas, who we just read about at the close of chapter 9. These people just keep dropping into our laps. We know nothing about them, but all that Luke testifies is that God has been working in their lives. 
I mean, do you not look at Cornelius and begin to ask questions? Wait a second. A Roman soldier? How in the world has this guy become a devout God-fearer who generously gives almonds and who prays to God continually? And if you want to object and say, well, maybe he was just a religious guy, but he was really uh, you know, a bad guy in, in secret or something, look at the way the angel speaks. What does the angel say about these gifts of alms and these prayers? The Lord is pleased by them. They've risen up to the Lord like a sacrifice, which is a beautiful way of saying, here's a Gentile man, an uncircumcised Gentile man. He couldn't offer sacrifices. And in place of his ability to go to the temple and offer sacrifices, the Lord has been pleased by the aroma of his alms that he's given and his prayers that have gone up to the Lord. God's pleased with these things. He knows Cornelius' heart. And so we stop and we say, how in the world did Cornelius come to this point? We're left asking the same question about the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going, how in the world did an Ethiopian eunuch decide to travel all the way to Jerusalem? How did that, how in the world did Ananias become such a devout follower? And, and how did he get to Damascus? And we, we wonder about this, this woman, this faithful widow, Dorcas, who, who was, was so committed to loving and serving the church. And, and here's just one thing I, th I think we need to be reminded of is that our God is at work in thousands and thousands of ways that we never see. At any given moment in our lives, God is doing way more than you and I could possibly fathom. Even as Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing down and recording the continued works of Jesus Christ, he wants to say to us, I couldn't write it all. There was way more going on than I could even write down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is at work in way more places and in way more ways than you and I could possibly imagine. Back in 2012, the according to Desiring God, the number one or one of the number one tweets by John Piper, and I don't even know if he tweeted this or whoever takes care of his social media tweeted this out. But one of the top tweets, which I guess means it was retweeted, I don't know, I'm not on Twitter, was just this statement, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. That's so true. And Luke wants us to have that perspective as he keeps dropping these people in our lap, in whose lives God has been at work, he explains none of it. He doesn't explain to us how the Ethiopian eunuch became so uh, devoted to, to the worship of the one true living God. He doesn't explain to us where Ananias came from and why God would send him to be part of Saul's conversion and call. He doesn't explain to us where Tabitha came from and he doesn't explain to us how Cornelius got to the point where he's a devout, God-fearing man who's giving alms and praying continually. What he wants to scream at us is that your God is at work in thousands and thousands and thousands of ways that you never see. What an encouragement to us. When we begin to think that way, when we live life that way, it changes our perspective. It changes our perspective to trying diligently all the time to find out the one way or the two ways that God might be at work to understanding that at any given moment we're participating in this masterful plan of God. 
That as we intersect with different people in our lives, we can, we can function with the assumption that God is at work in their lives. Doing something in their lives. It's also a great encouragement to us because the more I begin to believe that God is not at work, or the more I think He's only working in a few ways, the less encouraged I am to keep working myself. Right? You picture the child who's trying to help their parents accomplish a huge task. If mom and dad stop working, what's the kid going to do? I mean, their contribution wasn't much anyways, but if mom and dad quit, I'm done. God is at work. He is working in more ways than we could ever possibly see. He was working in the lives of, he was working in the lives of these people. He was working in Cornelius long before we ever begin to get this record. And God is at work in 10,000 ways and beyond. And we may ever only see a handful of them. Churches, we walk through difficult times and we feel the confusion. I just want to remind you that the work of God is far beyond what we can comprehend. That just because we can't understand it or see it does not mean that He is failing to work. One of the things that can be helpful to keep this in mind is to take a walk down, down memory lane. Not just for the sake of looking at old pictures and how fit and cute you used to be or those types of things, but to walk down memory lane and to consider Consider the moments when you were at highs, when you were at lows. Consider the moments when you lost sleep worrying and you were fearful about something that was to come. There was an issue in your life that you thought was unresolvable. There was a challenge in your life that you thought just there was no way around it. Walk back down memory lane, remember those moments, and then stop and consider how God was at work in those moments in more ways than you understood in that moment. Walk back through those things and consider now with that, that little bit of perspective of time how much the Lord did that He did bring you through. And maybe now you can see looking back that God was doing way more than you understood in that moment. In fact, you may even be like me. There are moments in my life where I was walking through difficult things and I'm seeking the Lord and I was praying certain things. And now with time, I look back and not only do I see God was doing way more than I thought he was doing, I am so thankful he did not answer my prayers. Because what I thought was the right thing to pray and what I thought needed to be done was not, was not what needed to be done. Church, be encouraged that God is at work. He is not sidelined or marginalized. He is at work in more ways than you and I could possibly fathom. And here, He is at work in this man named Cornelius, and not just in Cornelius, but in his entire family. And so Cornelius has this vision. He's praying at the, at the, the ninth hour, which would have been three o'clock, which was the hour of the evening sacrifice in Jerusalem. He's praying and he is shocked to see an angel appear to him. An angel who tells him to go and get Peter and that this guy named Peter is going to have a word for him. And so he obeys. Tells these attendants of his and a faithful soldier to head to Joppa to get Peter. We know that he relays all the information because later on these messengers of Cornelius are going to clearly explain the vision 
and why they've been sent. Now, of course, here in chapter nine, or excuse me, in verse nine, we have again what I mentioned before in Acts. We, we have, right, sovereign luck. It just so happens that at this time, after Cornelius has had this vision, that Peter, on the day that these men are going to arrive at the house of Simon the Tanner, goes up onto the rooftop at the sixth hour, which would be noon, to pray. And so he goes up on the rooftop. I know that's weird for us, but back then, flat roofs, maybe even a canopy or something to get away from the heat, but it would have been a place to pray. It may have even been that he goes up there so he can face towards Jerusalem as he prays. And the text tells us he was hungry. He wanted something to eat. And while he prays, he falls into a trance. Everything that Peter sees in this trance, the way it's all laid out, is to communicate clearly to Peter that God is speaking. That, that this is coming from God to Peter. And so right from the beginning, Peter falling into this trance, what does he see? He sees the heavens open and this sheet-like thing descend down. Now, just think back through the Gospels, think specifically about the Gospel of Luke. What is happening when the heavens open? What is happening when things come down from heaven? This is clearly God communicating. Baptism of Jesus, heavens open, the, the, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and God speaks about His Son. Transfiguration, the same thing. This is a very clear communication to Peter. This is the word coming to you from the Lord. So the heavens open and this sheet-like thing comes down. And in this sheet are all kinds of animals. Now, here in verse 12, it tells us that there are reptiles and birds. We find out later that there are also beasts of prey in chapter 11, verse 6. And Peter, called out by name, is given a specific command. Rise, kill, and eat. Now, don't take all that literally. It wasn't saying like just kill these things and rip into them without cooking them or anything like that. This isn't savagery here. The, the, the language used expresses preparing them appropriately. And remember, Peter is hungry. He's waiting for a meal to be prepared. And so here's this command. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, having this word coming down to him from the Lord, seeing the sheet come down to him with all these animals in it, responds in verse 14 very strongly. By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. His words are very strong, very clear, very forceful. And so a voice comes to him again and says, and says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God, what I am speaking to you, Peter, is true. Do not say is not true. If I'm saying it's clean, don't you call it unclean. And this happens, of course, three times. Why three times? Well, for sure, this is to solidify the fact that this is truth. This is what God is communicating. But we also know that three times was something of significance for Peter. There is a way in which this almost echoes Peter's denial of Christ. Right? Three times Peter was asked and three times he denied very strongly. 
It also echoes when, when the risen Christ comes to Peter and three times he says to Peter, feed my sheep. And so here again, three times Peter hears these words and it says in the thing, um, and then the, the sheet is taken back up into heaven. Verse 17 says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent from Cornelius, what do they do? They arrive at the gate of Simon's gate. Again, sovereign luck, right? This just happens to be at this moment that the, the vision ends and Peter is there now trying to figure out what in the world this vision means. What is being communicated to him? He's confused. He doesn't understand. And he's told by the Holy Spirit that the men are at the gate and that he is to go with them. In verse 20, it says, without hesitation. The word there doesn't mean he had to do it really fast. The idea is he needs to do it without distinction. It seems as though at this point in the text, Peter is unaware that it's Gentiles who are at the gate. He doesn't know who's there. He just knows there are people there and the Holy Spirit is telling him, you need to go with them. Now, interestingly enough, I love the fact that, that the Holy Spirit says, for I sent them, which is a great moment to point to the truth of the Trinity, right? An angel of God was sent to Cornelius, giving him this message, and then the Holy Spirit shows up to Peter and tells Peter, I sent them. So Peter goes to the gate. And he invites these men in. Now, there are things we have to understand here or try to help to understand here because, um, because there's laws that we don't, we don't live under, right? There were laws of, of food and regulations and relationship with the nations that, that are going on that dynamics involved here. For, for Peter to invite these men in would have been something, let's just say that Saul, who we, we, we met back in chapter nine as one who described himself according to the law of Pharisee, he probably would have never invited a Gentile into his home. According to strict teaching, that just wasn't something you do. It was too much of a risk that you might end up being unclean. But for many Jews, it wouldn't have been that big a deal, particularly for a Peter who's a fisherman by trade, right? He's not at that level that, that Saul was. Inviting Gentiles into your home like these men who've come from Cornelius would not be as big of a deal because you're still in control of things, right? You know that the things in the home are clean according to the, according to the law of Moses. And, and you know that, that the food you prepare has been prepared appropriately. And, and you know, you know you're not going to get a, a big plate of bacon slapped down in front of you. You're, you're aware of these things. You, you're, you're, you're in control of the situation. There's less of a chance that, that you're going to be, end up unclean. And so inviting them in was not that, that big a deal, but he invites them in as guests. Part of the reason he does that is because it was already midday. It was 30 or 31 miles from Joppa to Caesarea. So it was quite a journey to, to head out at that point would not have, have been best. So they, they stay that night. And then the text tells us the next morning he went with them and some brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We find out later that it's six men, six believers from Joppa who accompany him. Now, here's the amazing thing as we, as, as we were, we're here in this, this section of the, of the text, no one 
really knows exactly what's going on. I mean, we know because we, we've read the text and we have the whole story. But Cornelius, who's gotten a vision of an angel, has one piece of this whole thing. Go get Peter. Right? The angel showed up and, and text, uh, Cornelius, the, the, the location on Google Maps. Hey, this is where Peter's at. Go get that guy. All he knows is that Peter has a word from the Lord to give to him. That's all he knows. He didn't know anything else. Peter has received this vision of a sheet coming down out of heaven with all kinds of animals in it, squirming around, doing whatever. I mean, you picture it however you, I don't know. We, we, probably there are clean and unclean animals in there. And he sees that. It goes back up into heaven by Peter's own confession. He's confused. He doesn't understand exactly what this means. What he's told by the Holy Spirit is, hey, there are guys who are at the gate. Do not judge. Go with them. That's all he knows. Right? That's, that's all he knows. And so he's going with them. He, he's following them. It's this reminder to us that oftentimes God requires our obedience before our understanding. Oftentimes God requires our obedience before our understanding. The, God gave a command to Cornelius through this angel and he obeyed. Immediately he does it by his own testimony. He says, at once I, I called for my, my, my messengers and I sent them on the way. Peter obeys, although he's still confused about what's going on. He obeys. We can be challenged at times with the desire to fully understand everything that's going on before we move in obedience. I think some of that is because we're image bearers, and as image bearers, we ask why. We don't function just on instinct like our animals. Uh, we're, we're dog owners, and now chicken owners. And this weird thing will happen continually is that we will try to carry on rational conversations with these animals. They'll do something we perceive to be dumb and we'll explain to them why we think it's dumb. Our dog will do something and, 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 and we, will, we will not only tell them that it was bad and fuss at them, but we'll try to explain to them why it was bad. Like that was going to sink in somehow. Because it's how we think. We function in these ways. We want to understand why. Parents, we know this, right? With our children. It's pretty early on in the development of a child when giving them a command does not suffice. Come to the kitchen. Why? Turn off the TV. Why? Right? And, and all of a sudden there's this challenge that says, you need to explain to me why I'm supposed to do what you told me to do. Now, of course, we as parents, we also understand that there are many things that a parent understands the child does not. That at any given moment there may, may be way more going on that the child doesn't understand and that maybe the child doesn't need to understand. Maybe there are things that are too weighty, too heavy, too big to be comprehended by that child. So the command of the parent is do this without full explanation. Huge things are going on in this text. And God is commanding the obedience of Cornelius and commanding the obedience of Peter and He's expecting them to obey before He gives full explanation, before they fully understand what's going on. In fact, 
The way it's relayed to us here is that their their understanding only comes as they obey. We can think of living in rebellion to God as this, or or living in disobedience to God as some type of just a a, a rebellion, right? We we think of it, if we go back to the child illustration, we think of disobedience to God is going to show up like the child who's told, don't touch the outlet, and they stare mom right in the face, walk over to that outlet and smack the thing. And we think, oh, I'll never, I'm not going to live in that kind of disobedience to God. I I wouldn't do that. I'm not going to live in that type of rebellion. But in a subtle way, in a deceptive way, our flesh and the evil one can get us to walk in consistent disobedience because we just sit there and demand of God that He explain why before we do what He's telling us to do. That we sit there in disobedience, refusing to act because we're demanding of God that He explain all that's happening, what's going on, and why He would ask this of us. We want to see how it's all going to work out, and until we see how it's all going to work out, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait. And sadly, the more we walk in disobedience, the harder it is and the less likely it is that we will see and understand what's going on and what God is doing. God calls Cornelius and He calls Peter to obey and, 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 and they're, He doesn't explain everything to them and in fact, their understanding unfolds as they obey. So, they travel. They travel and they eventually get to Cornelius' house. It says the next day, so apparently they, they stop somewhere along on the journey. They arrive there at Cornelius' house the following day in Caesarea. Caesarea, which was a predominantly Gentile area. Cornelius had been expecting them, and he's called together his relatives and his close friends. And when Peter entered, which it probably means Peter entered his property, not yet that he's entered the house, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. Now, why is Cornelius doing this? Did Cornelius think that Peter was, was divine? Was he, was he associating Peter with this angel? Um, perhaps. Perhaps it was just that Peter understood, excuse me, that Cornelius understood that Peter has a word from the Lord. And maybe he's thinking if he has a word from the Lord, then maybe he's from the Lord in some way and, and he's falling down to worship. The beautiful thing is Peter's response. Peter, looking at a Gentile, bowing down at his feet, says to this man, stand up. I too am a man. Now this is a beautiful thing because if you study religions around the world, this is something that is almost unique to biblical Christianity. This is Peter. This this is Peter. If you think about the, the resume of Peter... I mean, just imagine if Peter walked into our church this morning. Do you think you would keep listening to me? Do you think there wouldn't be a mob around him? This is Peter who was called by Jesus. This is Peter who was a part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. This was Peter who walked on water. Sank in the water, but walked for a little bit. This is Peter who was the first to confess of the disciples that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
This is Peter, who's the one who said, where else would we go, Lord? You have words of eternal life. This is Peter, who on the day of Pentecost preaches and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. This is Peter. For crying out loud, he's just raised a woman from the dead. This is Peter. And in many other religions, a man of with these types of accolades would be so high up on the ladder that bowing down to him wouldn't be sufficient. Maybe kissing his feet, maybe paying him a bunch of the money, maybe offering sacrifices to him, but not. Not what Peter has learned from his Savior. Because remember, this is also Peter who not all that long ago entered into debates over who was the greatest in the kingdom. And now here's Peter having learned from his Savior who washed his feet the night that he was put on trial, has a Gentile fall down at his feet, and he says, get up, I am but a man. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Verse 27, and he talked with him and he went in and found many persons gathered. Now what I would love is to just, for there to have been iPhones at this moment. I mean, I, there are probably signs. Peter could probably see there were a lot of people in the house. I don't, it wasn't like a surprise party. I don't think that might have given Peter a heart attack. But, but, but he, Cornelius says, I understand he greets him outside of the house. He, he's aware, okay, I'm going to a Gentile's house. There's no telling what kind of things Peter's thinking. He's still trying to understand this vision that's come to him as he's on this journey. And now he gets there, this Gentile falls down, all this stuff. And then he walks into the house and it's not just a family of Gentiles. It is a room packed with Gentiles. All gathered together. I just wonder what the expression is on Peter's face in that moment. All of these things flooding together for him in his mind. All of this stuff in him. I mean, he is aware. We've all been in these moments. We all know something's happening and it is about to send shockwaves out. Peter knows. Oh, Peter knows. He knows that people are going to hear about what's happening right now. He knows, probably by name, people who are not going to be happy with what's going on right now. He also is sitting there still, still trying to understand this vision that he's received from the Lord and the pieces are beginning to come together. He probably also has in his mind these words that he heard Christ speak about the fact that repentance would be preached to the nations, about the fact that they were to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And now here Peter stands in the home of a Gentile surrounded by Gentiles. And what does he say in verse 28? Well, it's not the way I would suggest entering someone's home and the first thing I would say, but it's what Peter says. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful is it, it is for a Jew to associate with, with or to visit anyone of another nation. What is he stating? He's stating what everybody in the room already knows. Up to this point, in, in, in redemptive history, this interaction, while not commanded uh, in, in the law of Moses, in, in, in Jewish law, this was not acceptable. In Jewish law, this went against what was appropriate because you're entering the home of a Gentile and you could so easily violate the food regulations, the dietary regulations, and be deemed unclean. This was not acceptable. 
And so he's stating what's obvious, what had been obvious to that moment. And it's important for us to understand that the reason, part of the reason for those dietary laws back in Leviticus chapter 11 and other places is the purpose of them was to put Israel aside. They were to be a unique people. They were to be distinct from the nations. I know some of you have asked the question many times, why did God take pork away from Jews? I mean, was he just being cruel that they couldn't have bacon? Was he being cruel that they couldn't eat shrimp? No, the part of the purpose of it was so that they would be unique, that they would be a distinct people, that they would have a distinct purpose and plan, that, that, that they would not have relationships with the other nations, part of which would happen around the table. These food regulations would put clear barriers in place. That was incredibly true back in biblical times, and it's even true for us today. Think about um, the difference that takes place in your home when you've invited somebody into your home, the change that that makes in the relationship. The change that it takes in a relationship when someone sits down at your table and eats food that you've prepared for them. The relationship change, changes. It becomes much more intimate. That, that, that grows. That has an impact. God had set some of these rules in place so that, that the Jewish nation, His chosen people, would be distinct. They wouldn't have those types of intimate relationships with the other nations because they were to be a distinct people. Not only that, but we know that part of these food regulations probably connected with worship. We see that later on, right? Church at Corinth, there's this whole debate over food, meat offered to idols, and what are we going to do with that? There are regulations in the Old Testament that we still kind of scratch our heads about, but we know God had good reason for giving it. Like, don't, um, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And we're going, I don't know what that's about. Chances are there's a possibility that part of the reason that's there is because it connected with pagan worship in that day. And so God is forbidding those things. These things, the important part is to understand that these food regulations were to make Israel distinct. It was part of the Mosaic law. It was part of making them distinct because they were God's chosen people. But now, now, as Peter begins to understand, as Peter stands there surrounded by these Gentiles, recognizing that it's unlawful according to the law of the Jews for him to associate with these people, now he begins to understand and he says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Something huge has happened. Christ has come and he has fulfilled the Mosaic Law. He has fulfilled it and it has been done away with. In the shedding of His blood, He has brought in the new covenant, which has been symbolized by the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In Christ, God has removed the barriers that kept Jew and Gentile from being able to fellowship together so that now the gospel can go forward to the nations. For Peter, the question was never, should the gospel go to the nations? That was proclaimed from the very beginning. All the way back to Simeon, when with, with little, little baby Jesus there at the temple, he declares that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles. John the Baptist declares that in Luke chapter 3. Jesus declares that in Luke 24, 47, that forgiveness and repentance of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations. 
The beginning of Acts, again, we've already talked about this. Jesus says that the question was not, should the gospel go to the nations? Should the gospel get to the Gentiles? The question was, how? How could it happen? How could the, the gospel, which was to the Jews first, get to the Gentiles if by just merely associating with them, I could become unclean and they were deemed unclean? How could that happen? And now Peter begins to understand God in Christ has now made them clean. He's taken away these barriers that are in place that the gospel might go forward. That relationships with these Gentiles, fellowship like this could happen. And so he asked them, why am I here? Why did you bring me here? And Cornelius explains again for a third time the vision that he's seen. And he ends it this way, which is so beautiful. In verse 33, he says, so I went... I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that has been commanded by the Lord. I'm just floored by Cornelius. Why, why, does, he, why does he think that the presence of the Lord is in this place? Because he has the spiritual oogity boogities Because the emotions of the moment, the lighting is just right? Fog machine going? No. He believes God is present because Cornelius understands God spoke to me and told me to get this man who had a word from the Lord. God has orchestrated this moment. God has brought us together here. God is the sovereign one who's made all of this happen. And if he's made all of this happen, he's here in this moment and there's a word to hear from him. And so he's ready along with these relatives of his and these friends of his, to hear what God has to say. In case you haven't noticed it, God's sovereign hand is all over this moment. And this is a huge moment in redemptive history. This is a huge moment to show to the, to, to the Jewish people how the gospel now is going to advance out into the nations. It's a huge moment because I, I don't know if we have any Jewish people in here right now, but, but if this doesn't happen, if this doesn't get explained, then you and I aren't sitting here. This happens, this moment takes place under the sovereign hand of God to help Peter to understand, which will send these ripples throughout the church in Jerusalem to say, yes, here is how the gospel is going to the nations. Here is how it's happening. Because God in Christ has made a way. Because God in Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law. Because God in Christ, through the shedding of His blood, has established the new covenant. Because God in Christ is now revealing a mystery that was hidden in the past of the church where Jew and Gentile will worship together, fully accepted and adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. Incredible. And praise God, it was not contingent on Cornelius figuring all of this out. And praise God, it was not contingent on Peter figuring all of this out. This text does not point to a really savvy Gentile who was like, man, I, let me figure out how I can get the gospel. He wasn't looking for the gospel. Don't misunderstand that in Cornelius. His good behavior was not God saying, you've been so good, you deserve to get saved. No, he wasn't looking for it. It came to him by grace and God's sovereign grace coming to him. Peter wasn't sitting there going, i got to figure out the strategic plan on how to advance the gospel and, and how to bring... No, this is all the sovereign hand of God at work. 
just like it was when God entered into covenant with Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking. Abraham wasn't searching. God comes to him and enters into covenant. And every significant moment in redemptive history as recorded in Scripture, what do we see over and over again? It is the sovereign hand of God at work that brings it about. Delighted to work through His people and the obedience of His people, yes, but the sovereign hand of God brings it about. So sure enough, just like thousands of years ago, God in His sovereignty called a man named Abram and entered into an unconditional covenant with him and promised him that through his seed, singular, the nations would be blessed now in that same gracious sovereignty. He is taking the next step to see that blessing go to the nations. Why is that an encouragement to you and me? Because listen, folks, if it was up to us, we would have screwed it up a long time ago. If God's redemptive plan was contingent on our strategic planning, on our ability to nail it, on our ability to stay on course, well, the record of Acts shows us that would have been lost, but our own history shows us that would have been lost. It's not contingent upon us. This is the plan of God, which is working out to His glory to the exaltation of His Son. And we get to be a part of it. And we rejoice in that and we take confidence in that, that our sovereign God is working in 10,000 ways we do not see to send the good news of Christ to the ends of the earth. And He delights to allow us to be a part of it as we walk in obedience to Him. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this account of, uh, of, of Cornelius. I pray, Father, that as we read this text, we will see how you have been working and are working that the gospel may get to the ends of the earth. Thank you for all that you accomplished in Christ. Thank you that because of what Christ did, we're sitting here today, all of us who have placed our faith in Christ are here today. Lord, remind us as well in this, that this is the direction that you're moving. You desire to, to have the good news of Christ preached to the nations. Oh Lord, may you find in us willing hands and feet. May you find in us willing tongues to testify. that Christ would receive the glory that he is due. From your chosen people, Israel, yes. And also from among the nations. We pray it in his name. Amen.